0: morning, everybody. I have a bottle of water, which I remind you makes me <clears throat> cool. Because you're supposed to, you know, have a bottle of water at all times. Um, while, I, while I get uh, a little bit of water, um, if you would join me in looking at Romans chapter 3. And we'll read a a short portion there. I think it was last, um, maybe this service, that last Sunday I looked at this scripture and and then we never read it. So, you know, um, (laughs) we'll get to it now. So if you can find that, 3:21 is where I want to begin. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now apart from the law does not mean that we have we pay no regard to the law, God's law. It's that is not that the law was never meant to save me in the proper sense of the term, it was meant, Paul says in Romans, to teach me what sin was, to show me the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law and how far short we fall from it in attempting to keep it without the grace of God was designed to show us the impossibility of being saved without God's grace. So that's what he means, apart from the law. It is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith, as opposed to keeping the law, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Just briefly let me say what that means. We're not to take from the fact that God, down through the ages... Um, he used in, in the King James Version tr- translation, said God winked at some of these sins, but now commands all men to repent. Meaning, he, in progressive revelation, let some things slide, but now, in the brighter light of Christ, we don't have any excuse anymore. And that so. The, the statement here is that just because God lets some things slide for a while doesn't mean he's into that, <laughs> okay? Um, he, he is not permanently into that. Now, 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in in Jesus. Now that 26th verse means a lot about the atonement, deals with the whole question of why God had to become a man and why that man named Jesus had to die on a cross. There was no other option. There was nothing else. The cross was a total necessity. If God was to himself be just and then justify those who put their faith in him, what he means there is God himself. Really, I don't want to get off the subject here, but the barrier, the barrier between God and us, the rebels. The barriers within God, in this sense, he can't just shrug his shoulders, sweep it under the rug and say, oh, it's okay. He can't do that and be just. He's a just God. He said, you sin, you'll die. Period. No ifs, ands, buts, Philadelphia lawyers, nothing. You sin, you die. He has to be just in upholding that both threat, promise, and penalty. He has to uphold that penalty or he's not just himself. Only then by upholding his own justice and his own holiness can he then rightly and justly turn around and justify or put right is what the word means, set right before His eyes those of us who repent of our sins, turn from them and trust in Him. So He has to be just. Therefore, He can justify. Now, looking further at the whole business of the doctrine of the atonement. The atonement, I mentioned in the earlier service, I have preached about the atonement or preached, mentioned it or whatever, obviously a thousand times. But I've never taken a, a long time to look at the doctrine of the atonement and how it is the foundation of our religion but we don't see it. We can see its effects, but we don't really see the foundation often. Just like a building, this building or whatever, we don't see the foundation. Those of us who saw it being built, I can remember it. It's really exciting, Um, looking at gray concrete. But it's all covered up now. I don't see it. But unfortunately, (laughs) in some of the issues we had with our building, we sure are aware that we do have a foundation and that it is not good and it shows up in cracks on the walls. Now, we can address those cracks on the walls. We can scrape sheetrock mud into them. And we can repaint them. But the truth is, you and I know we did absolutely nothing to fix it. There's too many people spiritually, in their spiritual lives, just get out the sheetrock mud and the paint and don't ever get down to the foundation. The foundation is responsible for the whole building. Its shape, its weight bearing, the foundation, which I can't see, is everything. The atonement, the doctrine of the atonement is similar. We don't think about it often. And I've mentioned before, we kind of glibly, just it just kind of rolls out of our mouth, Christ Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, and we wear crosses, and we paint them on the walls, and the cross is a big deal. And if you stop people and say, "Listen, not only why do you wear that cross? Why do you talk about that cross? Why do you talk about the death of Jesus on the cross? Why did he? Why did he do that? Did he have to? Could he? Could he have avoided it? Could there have been another way, a different way, to reconcile God and His?" chief creatures, creation, men and women. Is there some other way? No. There was no other way. This had to be. Getting at why and what exactly was accomplished on the cross is critical. And it's often below the ground, so you don't see it, but it sure affects your Christian life. It affects your behavior. It affects everything. So I want to look here at um, kind of an, just a three, a very quick three-point introduction, introduction to an overall view of God's response to sin. Um, the fall, the sin, sin is the underlying issue of everything that this is, the, this is what determines everything else. Now, so what's God's response to sin? One, and it's in this order. It cannot be in any other order. One, anger. Two, anguish. Three, atonement. Now, Here's what, this is a bit of review, but here's what we cannot ever forget. And if we aren't aware of this, then the whole of dis- business of the atonement, the whole thing of Christ hanging on a cross for my sins, is total nonsense. It becomes gibberish to us if we don't remember several things. One, the implacable. Antagonism between a holy God and a rebellious creature, us. Between holiness and sin, God's holiness and our sin. This, this is an uncrossable gulf. God, I we probably can't come up with good. <laughs> Um, English words for God's utter intoleration for sin for rebellion within his kingdom wherever in God's entire kingdom there is any rebellion rejection of his sovereignty and his right to rule any Deviation from his prescribed behavior that he requires of us. Breaking of his law. I, I don't have the words. He will hunt it down and kill it. He can't not and be holy. Wherever then sin rears its head, there, there is... An absolute irreconcilable gulf between God and the rebel. It also, here's the thing with God whether it's His love, whether it's His righteousness, whatever it is, it always, always, always produces action. God doesn't just sit here and think I love that wayward race and don't do something. Nor does he look at us in our rebellion and say, Ah, oh, so I, I, I don't know, I can't do much about it, I guess. I'll just, you know. He doesn't do that. He always acts on his heart. So as a holy God, He automatically goes after sin wherever it is. It is a direct frontal assault to Him and His rule, and He simply won't tolerate it. We don't understand the need for an atonement until we get that in our heads. We're not dealing then, as I mentioned last last week, we're not dealing with Jim Lewis. Maybe I can't remember what service I use that. You're not dealing with Jim Lewis, the beechnut nut gum guy that was in my dad's church when I was a little kid. All the little kids, we, we all greeted him because he passed out beechnut nut gum. We love Jim. For him, for who he was. no. It's for what He dug around in His pockets and gave to us. That's all we cared about. That's what most people treat God like. He's the beech nut gum guy. Well, He isn't. He's first holy, which means He seeks out like laser against sin. He won't tolerate it. Thou The psalm says, Thou art of purer eyes than to even look upon iniquity. That's God. So, we have a God then who hates sin, but as I mentioned a week ago, God's dilemma, if you want to use that word that God Himself could be in a dilemma, He hates sin with all of his heart, and he will not leave it alone. He'll destroy it. But the sin that he hates the most is in and practiced by the being he loves the most. What in the world does he do? How does he uphold his holiness, which will not ever negotiate with sin? And how does he express his love to me? The rebel. He has two options. So that's, this is point two. The implacable antagonism is the first point. Second, God's got two options. One, obliterate the sinner. He would not be unjust at all if he did that. Every the sinner deserves death. He can't drop that penalty. So option one is just could have in the garden, just obliterate Adam and Eve and then go one of two ways. Never create another creature like Adam and Eve and us again and save himself. Who knows how much trouble? Or number two, he makes an offer of sin. He balances his holiness and his love and this rebel that's in front of him. He makes an offer of salvation and reconciliation to that rebel that at the same time upholds his penalty and his wrath and his, his utter displeasure with sin still treats the offender, the rebel as a free moral agent because he requires the rebel, aids them but requires them to repudiate sin, turn and trust in him to restore and reshape and renovate our hearts so that the moral, not physical, moral effects of that first sin that Adam and Eve committed is undone, forgiveness is given, nature reformation and renovation of our nature accomplished. In other words, to restore us to His image and His likeness morally. How, that's what He has to do. And how does He about doing that. Now, here's where I want to stop and look at several explanations for how He does that. And the ones I want to look at first are the ones that are in error. There are a number of doctrines of the atonement. It depends. um, It can run all the way from a low of four to I've seen as many as eight or nine different named doctrines of the atonement or theories is the word that gets used. Theories of the atonement. So how does God do this? Here's probably the two most popular ways of explaining it. Okay, Because they're popular means nothing. Except if they're popular it it raises the chances exponentially that they're wrong because they're popular, okay? Here are two explanations for the atonement that are very, very popular today. First is the notion that the cross and Jesus coming into this world, growing up, being born, Here, born of a virgin, grew up, lived his life, understands us, went about doing good, and finally died on a cross for our sins. All of that was done by the Father as a way to demonstrate to you and I who are rebels how much He loves us. And that expression, demonstration, display of love has a design to it. And its design is to melt my hard heart at that display of love and induce me then to abandon my rebellion, to acknowledge God's sovereignty and His right to rule and His right to make requirements of us and His demands and claims upon us and the law He commands us to keep. And all of that response on our part is induced by the picture of that suffering Savior who was the last to deserve something like that. And that is designed to melt my heart. Okay? That's why the believers in that theory will preach always the, the love of God and strangely absent is any wrath anger or penalty for sin now let me stop here for a second is is dear jesus hanging on the cross suffering for the sins of the whole world and dying does that break our hearts it sure should. Is it? Is it a display of God's love to us? Absolutely. But the theory itself doesn't go far enough. It eliminates, or bypasses, or never mentions the fact that we are under a curse and under. Pending execution. Of course, all of us, the teachers of that theory and all of us, would agree with probably the greatest capsule form of the entire gospel and the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth him believeth in him shall have everlasting life did i leave anything out yeah i did shall not perish that introduces the entire issue of wrath judgment penalty that will be executed. Because again, our God is just and He makes sure that He always is, acts justly. Just and righteous are two really closely related words. And we say about God, He's righteous. We say it about humans. He does. What is a righteous God? It's a God who never, ever acts in any way out of harmony with His holy nature, okay? So God has to withhold His law, or uphold His law, and uphold His integrity. And that involves, buried in that verse which seems to blare, and rightly does, the immeasurable love of God toward, as John says, while we were yet unlovely or unlovable while we were rebels Christ died for us and loved us. All of that's true. But an explanation for the cross that only dwells on that as a demonstration of His love and that specifically ignores the fact that we are slated to perish because of sin is biblically inexcusable. This is generally, it used to be that this particular theory was held most by mainline liberal churches. Frankly, in a lot of ways nowadays between small-e evangelicals and mainline liberals, there aren't that many differences. This, I think, is one of the most popular doctrines. It's... And, and I don't hear, I want to get off, I won't even tell you how, how long I went over this morning. And I escaped the wrath of the nursery people. They're, they, listen, they're into judgment and wrath. Um, but... Not to get off um, too far here. but I don't know how long it's been. Good 10 years or more. We just pound and pound and pound and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. God's unconditional love, God's unconditional love, and we just get weepy and soft and our voices kind of quaver and we talk about God's unconditional love. Listen, do you know something? Other than, is there unconditional love? Yeah, lots of it. In showing grace to me as a rebel and in purchasing a plan to save me. But that's as far as it goes. There is no unconditional love that ushers me into heaven while in rebellion against God. For the person who will not repent and will not believe and will not bow the knee to God, there isn't that much unconditional love. Only that He called us, loves us enough to prepare a plan for us, but if we reject that, there isn't one ounce of unconditional love. That always, if we're going to use that insipid term, it always has to be accompanied with an explanation that don't, try to stretch that, that I can disobey God, rebel against God, walk against His Holy Spirit, and expect that unconditional love will cover it. You're in for a rude awakening. Now, so what does this, what makes this theory um, not a good one? One, it completely fails to address the holy integrity of God who always keeps His word. The core thing of trusting in God, you see it so much in the Old Testament. You are the covenant keeping God. What does that mean? He keeps His word. Always keeps His word. Always. Back in the days of Samuel, no, none it says of the None of the words of the Lord fall to the ground. He, when, when, we, when this world's finished and judgment is over, there won't be one syllable of what God uttered. His words described as the thoughts of His heart. Not a syllable will not be fulfilled. He's the covenant-keeping God. So when He says... You confess your sins, I'll forgive you. He meant it. You honor me, He said, I'll honor you. You draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. He'll keep that forever. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, means that too. He means that too. We want Him to be a covenant-keeping God when it comes to forgiveness and all that stuff, which we're for. But we want him to get kind of forgetful when it comes to the other words. They're all the same to him. He's the covenant-keeping God. He said, you reject me? He said, Jesus said. You're ashamed of me? I'll be ashamed of you at judgment. You disown me, he says, I'll disown you. He means it. This theory... Never even talks about that. Eliminates it and bypasses it all. Second, along with that, it reverses the Bible's established pattern of how God always reveals Himself. It is always anger, wrath, displeasure against sin first. Then, after I have had a good double dose of the conviction of God and His wrath and recognize what I deserve and what I've done to God's heart. Then He introduces His mercy, love, grace, kindness. And then I appreciate it because I've been introduced clearly to what I, what I deserve. That's when we appreciate God's outstretched hands to us. When we recognize, Ah, oh God, what have I done in grieving your heart? Then when He says, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will rest you. Ah, hits a heart. Then the, Then, and only then, does that demonstration of his love sink down deep into my heart and it produces the desired fruit which is a broken heart and a contrite heart David said oh God you'll never discard disregard pass by that's what you're after broken and contrite heart finally this theory would, re, would, would really be if you start thinking about it If this was really not necessary, if this was just a demonstration, God the Father's up in heaven trying to figure out a really neat way to demonstrate that He really loves the human race that are in rebellion against Him. And so He comes up with the notion that I'll just send my only begotten Son and work it out so that He is scourged and beaten and spit upon and mocked and humiliated and finally put on a cross to die a horrible death. What kind of a father would do that? I'd think of a better way to demonstrate that I love everybody. This, then, is a lousy doctrine of the atonement. It bypasses God's holiness and his penalty for sin and his wrath towards sin. And it also has him in a cruel, um, unthinkable way of demonstrating his love. It would be hoped that he'd have enough love for his son that he wouldn't do that to him just as a demonstration. There's a second one, second theory. This one, I think, is probably more popular than this one we've looked at. And I'll have to be careful with my time here. But I really want to hit this one, uh, you know, as clearly as I can. Um, This is very popular. It's heard many times. Um, It's in books, it's in TV preachers, it's everywhere the vast majority of people may not even recognize that it's this particular named theory of the atonement. Um, Nobody thinks about the atonement very much Um, and its basis. But this is a doctrine that views sin as a debt. Is that incorrect? No, not at all. But it views sin as an unpayable debt to God. We are completely in debt to Him, and some also add into this a notion that we're also somehow um, we're indebted even to Satan, and that the Father pays a ransom to free us from the clutches of Satan. Is that false? No. Jesus said, I give my life as a ransom for all. So is the notion of indebtedness false? Not at all. Jesus even taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. There's truth to this. There's hardly any of these theories that have no truth. It's just insufficient truth. So it's viewed as a debt that cannot be paid, and so the Father, through Christ, the offering of Christ on our behalf and in our place, pays that, arranges for that debt to be paid. And essentially, Christ, who went to the cross willingly, Christ repays the debt to the Father. There's a sense in which this theory looks at the whole indebtedness of sin as a legal transaction between the son and the father to cover the debt that you and I have indebted ourselves to. And we can't pay it. So only God could figure out a way to to pay it, and that's the way. The, The father sent the son, the son pays the penalty the debt, and the father acknowledges that, and therefore treats the rebel as if they're no longer indebted, okay? Now, is there truth? Of course there's truth to all that. But here's where, here's where it gets off the rails badly, and like a foundation, affects our visible life this theory then that there's a legal transaction covering the debt and the key thing about this covering of the debt that i have that is critical it pays the debt through christ for all the sins of the world which is also true but the person who puts his trust in that sacrifice as we're to do, has past, present, all future sins forgiven. The only problem with that is blatantly false. Other than that, it's a good theory. It's false. All the sins of the world are covered by Jesus' blood, provisionally. What do I mean by that? It's dependent on, as, as Jesus said, I'm lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Those bitten with that poisonous serpent looked at that serpent in brass on a pole acknowledging their own sin and they were healed. All all the Israelites recovered. That's a lot of them. Why were there so many that died? It's provided. Why didn't it cover them? Because they refused to look. So they died for their own sins. It's no different with Jesus. Yes, Jesus' blood is powerful to cover every sin in all world. Is everyone today saved and forgiven? No. Why not? Because it is provisionally provided, not automatically implemented. The tragedy is I can go through my whole life with the potential of my debt being paid, my sins being forgiven, my soul being redeemed to God and headed for heaven and enjoy and experience none of it because I won't believe. The key verse we read, last verse of Romans 3:26. God is just and the justifier, what? Of those who believe in Jesus Christ. So many lose their souls because they won't do that. Then, I've got to all hurry up here. Problems with that theory, then, it bypasses the idea of penalty completely. On us, Yes, Jesus paid a penalty. But the idea of the infliction of the penalty on us who have committed the sins is bypassed. Second, the notion um, of a covering for past and present and all future sins leads to what's called antinomianism, meaning no law. I don't need to keep any law. You, you say that you've got to obey God and keep the law, walk with Jesus, obey his commands. That's work salvation. No, it's not. No, that's the evidence that I have believed that I am a Christian. Because Jesus said, don't you call me Lord and not do what I tell you. So doing what He tells me, following His commandments, is part and parcel being Christian. As to the notion, well, let me just finish this antinomianism, no law. If you have a prepaid credit card till the end of your life, I don't know how many, gazillion, there's probably some people in here that could run through that much. I don't know, but... You get a prepaid card. covers anything you now owe, did owe, but also will owe, skull covered. Who is going to practice fiscal restraint and responsibility who has that kind of a card in their wallet? Who is going to practice sometimes vicious battle of keep the faith, fight the good fight, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Who's going to practice that when a alluring temptation is right in front of you, and in the back of my head is, I got a preacher and books I read that tell me that anything I anticipate doing is already pre-forgiven. Who's going to toe the line? The teachers of that doctrine say, well, we don't mean that. I don't think they do. I I, I agree. We don't want to see people do that. But they do. Because that doctrine is an open door to that. There's no, there's also, and I can't get into this, maybe we'll deal with it next week, in that particular theory, too, the righteousness of Jesus and his obedience is all credited to me, whether or not I obey. So I'm treated as an obedient person, even if I might not be obedient, because Jesus' obedience. And here's, here's an old, old 1700s prayer by, I think it was either Charles Wesley or somebody, wrote this poem, which I don't, can't remember all of it. But it's called the Antinomian's Prayer, the no law prayer. I don't read the Bible, but Jesus did. Credit His reading to my account. Treat me as if then I do. I don't pray, but Jesus prayed. Credit His prayers to me. Treat me as if I pray. Jesus triumphed over sin. I don't, but credit His triumph to me. That that is what this doctrine spawns and it affects our behavior. Now, what does Jesus have to say about it? I know I must quit, but Jesus told a parable, rather harsh parable, it seems. Read it for yourself. You really ought to read it. Matthew 18. The parable of the slave, the servant, that owed him 10,000 talents. And he intentionally named that as a it's an unthinkable, ungraspable, and unpayable debt. 10,000 talents. Called him in, fell on his knees. The slave said, please have mercy on me, and I'll, I'll pay you all of it back. Well, there's no way in the world he could have paid him back. The servant knew it, so, so did the king who was God. So it says forgave him. That guy goes out. You know the story. Finds a fellow slave, only only owes, you know, a dollar, whatever, to him. That slave falls to his knees and says exactly the same words that slave number one said to the king. Have mercy on me, have patience with me, and I'll repay you it all. And he said no, choked him. Then took him and threw him into debtor's prison, says, till he paid the whole debt. What's the rest of the story? The servants grievously reported to the king what had happened. The king summoned servant number one back into his presence. Now, I want, Jesus said this, I didn't say it. And I would have to say this. If Jesus really believed, if he believed that past, present, future sins were forgiven all at once, he never should have told this parable. He brought him back in and he said, I forgave you all that debt. Now that establishes he forgave it. Bought it out. It's off my books. I forgave you all that great debt, you wicked slave. But you didn't have mercy on your fellow servant who only owed you a dollar, whatever it was. Then what did Jesus say? What did he do? Now now listen to me. He reinstated the debt that he just got through saying, I forgave it, but not anymore. Because he said, before he forgave it the first time, he said, deliver him to the tormentors till he pays it all back. Falls to his knees, begs, says, I'll pay you. I know you can't, so I will forgive it. Then it says he forgave him. Then when he hauls him back in the second time, he says, Uh, Third time, says, I forgave you all that debt. What was his final sentence? Deliver him to the tormentors until he pays me every dime. He reinstated the debt. Now, you cannot get around that. That's sobering. And it, it should, coming from the lips of Jesus, put to death that lousy theory of the atonement that somehow we are forgiven of all of our sin past present future i wish i had you don't wish i had more time there it's filled with then in daily practice it's filled with unreasonable illogical responses only one i'll mention if we sin, disobey God, rebel, I'm not talking about mistakes, failures, little involuntary stuff, but I disobey God n- willingly, knowingly, violate the known law of God, disobey Him knowingly. We're supposed to, what, what do we do in those cases? Talk to thousands of people that believe in that. What are we supposed to do? Well, you've got to ask God to forgive you makes no sense. That doesn't make a dime's bit of sense. It's already forgiven. It's already forgiven. I don't, what, what kind of a God would hold me responsible and say, I want you to ask me to forgive when His dear Son already died and He paid the bill and now He's done on me for the bill that Jesus paid? Makes no sense at all. That's one of about 40 things of that theory that's ridiculous. It's not the Bible. Those are at least two doctrines of the atonement that we cannot take to heart because of what they do to our behavior and our walk. So, as I told the first service, on that happy note, Dan will come and pray, and we'll be dismissed.
1: Let's pray. Father in heaven, with no sarcasm at all, that is a happy note because those truths will help us land happily on heaven's shores because if we don't walk by truth, we will die by lies. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus as we learn these foundational truths of what the atonement is and what it isn't and how some truth is no good We need to be taught by our pastor, which we are, and we are so grateful for that, Lord, the way Paul taught the whole counsel of God. Help us never take for granted your truth and help us to, as the Apostle John said, there's no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in the truth. May we be a congregation that does just that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.